Comic Geek Speak presents The Crisis Tapes, Crisis on Infinite Earths, Issue 1, Part 1. Welcome back to Crisis Tapes. I'm Adam Murdo. I'm Peter Rios. That's right. The original co-hosts back in the saddle again. And this is a, a hotly anticipated moment in Crisis Tapes history when we, you know, this is a podcast devoted to the discussion of a single 12-issue maxi-series. Or, and I know you're not a fan of that term, Peter, but it's right there on the front cover, so we got to acknowledge it sometime. Oh, uh, no, no, no. The, I, I like maxi-series. I just don't like when they call like a six-issue or five-issue. Oh, okay. So you're just... What it's strictly defined as a twelve-issue series, and yeah, like I think it, nothing like else will eight, do. I think eight, even uh, I want to say like there was an eight-issue maxi series. Like even that, I could go for you know. But, yeah, that, that just yeah. kind of sounds like puffery. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so yeah, but this is the maxi series of all maxi series, folks. The twelve-issue maxi series, Crisis on Infinite Earths. This podcast is devoted to nothing but that, and now we finally get around after how many years to talking about. An actual issue of that maxi series. December sixth, two thousand nine, was our first episode, and here we are, episode ten. Yeah, about uh, how many? Five years and a month later. <laughs> but better late than never. After all, time is fluid and relative, as crisis among many, many, many other fictional texts should have taught us. So. Let's just pretend you step through a time warp underneath some red skies, and uh, we've actually we, – we did this like five years ago. And what better timing, you know, more or less? Ah, uh, yes, in this great anniversary year. Because uh, – and I've cited this several times over the past couple of months, Peter, but I remember you saying that uh, you know, as you know, crisis kid that you are, you know, first-generation crisis fan, you've said that you can remember picking up the, the first issue to this series like in the last week of uh, 1984. Somewhere around there, I wish – you know, those notes that I kept, they don't quite go to this time period. I think uh, the farthest back that my notes go of, of you know, me purchasing comics week to week, it's somewhere around crisis number 10 or so. Um, but yeah, I can remember this being a, a, winter, um, a winter comic, if, if that makes sense. That makes perfect sense. I often remember – I think of uh, X-Men Alpha, for example, as a winter comic. Oh. So I'm sure I picked that up either in January or February of uh, 1995. Yeah, and it's – you know, I know that's a, the big thing going around you know, because, uh, you know, Co Convergence is coming out in April and everybody's saying, oh, that's the 30th anniversary of Crisis and <laughs> that's the cover date. Right, April 85, but – But it's not the actual date. It's not when it actually hit the stand. Mm -hmm. it's, not, it's not even the, the date in story, right, which I assume we'll get to. It's not even the, the date that the story takes place. Uh, well, what does – is there a date given? For oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. When they go up to the uh, satellite, it says July 1985. Hmm. Or is it July or is it June? Hold on. <laughs> See, these are the things we're trying to pay attention to here on the crisis tapes. Yep, there it is, July 1985. Right. And they did they did that because that way they could tell this story in a little bit of you know months ahead of time while their books were actually reflecting 
you know, a couple months back. Ah, that makes perfect sense. So it's not just uh, to build excitement in the readers that they're, you know, peering into the future. It's uh, to give them an out uh, to explain why the regular DC Universe comics are continuing, you know, business as usual. Yeah, just to give them a chance to catch up. And I think that's, you know, thinking ahead on some of the later issues and what was going on across the line, you can see how all of a sudden more of the tie-ins start to come in later in this maxi-series run. All right, so here we are, um, much closer to the actual 30th anniversary of Crisis Number 1, Suck It Convergence. <laughs> and uh, so I guess we're ready to get down to business. Yeah, um, I guess we should, how about we go through just a little bit real quick uh, for the, if, who knows, maybe this is the first time someone is hearing. Uh, entirely this, possible. Yeah, this whole thing and um, the very first couple of episodes, you know, we just sort of talked about our own personal reasons for delving into this monumental story and why it affected us and um and then we, we went on to explain certain elements that are unique to not only this event, but to DC itself. You know, the word crisis, uh, the multiverse, the various Earths. Um, we did a top five, our top five favorite multiverse stories pre-crisis. And then the last four episodes um, and the last two were hosted by Adam um, – the, they delve into all of the appearances of the Monitor in the DC Universe across all their titles prior to this first issue as a way to kind of give a status quo of what was going on in each character's book or each team's book. Mm -hmm. um, yep. Also uh, gives us a chance to chart the uh, <laughs> developing work-in-progress uh, characterization of uh, the Monitor and his aide Lila. Right. Who uh, right. were uh, in, in the early stages of their development clearly much different from the characters that finally appeared in the Crisis series. Right. So those nine episodes are, are great to – because there might be some things that we may not go into quite as much detail um, because you know we're assuming that maybe you've listened to those. And there are only nine episodes. Some of them are long. Um, but we'll do we'll, – we'll make sure to – as a true footnotes episode, if you – don't know what that is, you know. We're, we'll go through page, cover to cover, page by page, panel by panel, um, giving all of our thoughts, breaking down why things are happening, and and you know, it's not just about oh, this character first appeared in blah blah blah, and that's all we talk about. No, there's there are reasons, there are ideas that um, you know, of all the annotations that I've seen out there, they they. They they only go so far, and they sometimes I think they could go even further. So that's our job. And may we do it well. <laughs> Here's but, hoping. Yeah, fingers crossed, knocking on wood, and so forth. So anyway, what's past this prologue? Now, the end of history begins. <laughs> All right. So I guess the best place to begin would be the cover, wouldn't you say? Yeah, and. Um... We'll be introduced to all these characters inside the book, um, so uh, you know we can hit that when it happens. But there are there are some things in here that um, I wanted to get your thoughts on, and you know say some things as well. Um, I think it's really interesting 
the layout of this cover, especially considering what just broke today in terms of comic news with uh, Marvel's announcement of a new Secret Wars. I mean, we've known this for a while now, but Mm. they had, you know. They had some big news today, whatever. Right. Um, the similarity of Alex Ross's you know, painted cover to the first issue to cover to Crisis Number 1 has been obvious to a lot of us for a while. Oh, yeah. And it's funny, but it has – I don't remember many other homages to this cover. Um, but I was looking at that Alex Ross cover, and I swear if you turn Crisis Number 1 upside down um, – the thing is right where Alexander Luthor Sr. is. And I'm almost wondering if, if like he said, hmm, I'm going to do that cover, but I'm going to flip it or reverse it. Uh, it's really kind of eerie. But um, uh, besides that, so what do you think? What do you, what did, what do you think? Do you remember the first time you saw this cover? I can remember when I obtained my copy of the first issue, and uh, which I'm holding in my hand right now. And uh, so I, I am using you know, my single issues for this. Are, are Same you doing here. Yeah, yeah, yep. yeah. I have my hardcover along with me. It might be fun to look at a couple of the things that uh, some of the, uh, the the core agenda, you know, the the things that were changed from uh, the original print run to the uh, collected edition. Uh, but I am looking at the first issue. I picked it up at the first comic show. I, I hesitate to call it a convention because it really wasn't one. It's just one of those shows that they used to have at the Sheraton Hotel uh, around the Reading area. It's in Wyomissing. Uh, this would have been, oh, geez, 1994, I want to say, uh, some, something like that. Uh, about the same time of year, too, January, February. And uh, I, I look at that uh, metallic ink on the front, you know, the, the special DC Comics 50th anniversary logo with the DC bullet as the zero and then a five next to it to match. And the band across the front, the, the top of the cover that says 12-part maxi-series is all shiny. And this is in the 90s, of course, when my head was filled with dancing dreams of hollow foil covers and all that good <laughs> stuff. So it, it kind of appealed to me. And so this, this comic wasn't even 12, uh, 10 years old yet when I first purchased it. But you know, as we've covered in earlier episodes when we did our own little crisis confessionals talking about our personal connections to the series, I can remember reading in many an issue of uh, Who's Who in the DC Universe that I picked up at used bookstores. Uh, reading about uh, the so-called crisis on infinite earths and how its events had uh, changed the lives of so many characters and uh, erased the lives of others. And so I felt like I was holding something of really terrific import in my hands and just watching just uh, the visual layout of the cover really drives home what a, a disaster that this story was intended to be, a cosmic, like Irwin Allen quality times a million disaster. Because it, it just shows just an, a huge chain of planets, planets Earth, crashing into each other, uh, you know, bits breaking off, crushing into rubble, you know, little plumes of energy bursting out of uh, the, 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 the globes as they uh, collide, and all streaming away into a big white spot of nothingness up in the uh, upper left. And really, the mere, the mere fact that uh, f- this was given two, uh, both the front and back covers, it's a two-page length uh, cover image is, is special enough because uh, here's where I turn to you, Peter, with your uh, crisis kid inside knowledge. Uh, were, were front and back covers very common in comics in the mid '80s? Um, you had them um, in in similar, uh, or I should say, in um, more special things. I'm I'm thinking of um, like Frank Miller's Ronin. You know, had uh, um, a front and back cover treatment. Um, I want to say one of the one of his daredevils did as well um, during his first run prior to Born Again, um, 
And beyond that, I would say I remember. I, I want to say Superman four hundred might have had a uh, a front and back cover. Um, and beyond that, um, I think they probably saved it for special occasions more than anything. Well, goodness knows if this didn't deserve it, nothing did. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but and getting back to what I was saying a moment ago, just the the fact that. All right, so so we've got all these this this huge string of Earths uh, being destroyed in the background, and the the heroes in the in the foreground, and also some smaller figures in the background. They're they're just kind of strewn randomly all over the place. Uh, well, th- th- this being a Perez cover, of course, uh, no detail is accidental. It's all very well coordinated, but. The fact that they're all just kind of – nobody has their footing. They're all just tumbling helplessly in the void, uh, trying to reach out to one another, writhing in agony and uh, and confusion and despair. And uh, it's – this is not – this is not a bunch of heroes and and villains uh, posing triumphantly. There's – it's not a case of good guy versus bad guy. This is not a, a battle or a war that's going on here. This is being framed from the outset as a disaster. It's a it's not exactly an it's an unnatural natural disaster right. and uh, there is a certain ideology a certain discursive rhetoric going on in the background there which we'll probably get into as our discussion of the series uh, continues but you know, the fact that this is not being shown as uh, the heroes versus uh, a massive threat to their existence which of course is what uh, would ultimately be revealed to be the case but at this point as far as anybody knows this is happening for no good reason which makes uh, the events here all the more terrifying you know the, the heroes have not yet and even some villains as the line between hero and villain will blur somewhat as we will see in as we talk about this first issue uh, but the characters the protagonists whether hero or villain have uh, they don't have a definite foe to fight just yet it uh, just increases you know, it heightens the sense of, of the unknown. Is this really terrifying idea that uh, we're up against some kind of unknown threat, and that things really will never be the same again? Yeah, and it, and it, you know, if you're in if you're in a DC mind frame, you know, you're already noticing things. Again, I know we'll talk about it inside, but just as a cover image, you're being subjected to not only different Earths. But different time periods of different Earths. Uh, you know, you have your multiple, your 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 multiverse characters with the crime syndicate. But you have your Dawn. If you're a fan of Legion of Superheroes, you're looking at Dawnstar. If you're if you read uh, Arion at this time, Lord of Atlantis. You know, they're from probably the two major extremes of time that DC is putting out at that time. You know. Um, I think it says like 45,000 years ago versus, you know, the, the 30th century. So um, it's interesting in that factor, too, that it's that's – why, that's why it's crisis on infinite Earths, you know, not crisis on Earth 3, not crisis on Earth 1 and 2, infinite Earths. And they are all more or less, you know, there's – not all of them, but the, the, that's giving you a big hint um, when you look at this cover. And this was a cover image that we did see prior to actually it being on the stands because of um, one of the, the last ad um, prior to this issue hitting um, showed this image. And it actually showed a couple of the first panels um, on page one, and then it, on the bottom it showed this image. So, Ooh, yes. Because there were th- – 
Go ahead. Was there also a silhouette of the monitor in a couple of those? Um, that was the first ad. It was just the silhouette of the monitor, and, and he, mm. it sits up. What does it say? Like you know, he's been looking, watching. The, he's been monitoring, monitoring the DC universe um, for many, many months. Now you'll find out why. And then the second one. I'm putting it up here. All right. So he's so the first ad for the past 12 months, he has been monitoring the DC universe, watching, waiting, scheming. Now you will found out, find out why. And it says DC universe crisis on infinite earth. So it's a whole other treatment, logo treatment. It's not right. even the same one. Yeah. Other title. Yeah. yeah. Crisis on infinite earth used to be the subtitle. Yeah. And then it said the DC universe will never be the same. Then the second one was the most eagerly awaited comic book event in 50 years. Worlds will live. Worlds will die. And that's only the beginning. And again, DC Universe, Crisis on Infinite Earths. Um, and then the third one was actually – I'm not finding it in my Google search, but uh, it did show the image of the, the first cover. So it's interesting to see that development happening in the in the ads. Another note I had about this is unless you saw – there was a comic magazine that, that had some previews of um, – I guess it had Perez's um, initial designs of Harbinger and Pariah. Um, now, in all those monitor, monitoring the monitor episodes, have have we seen Harbinger's look prior to this issue? I do not believe Lila became Har Harbinger in any of them. Okay. Yeah, I, I, there was. I mean, it just depending on how we want to treat a chronological order here, there was eventually a Tales of the Teen Titans issue where she shows up to recruit Simon as Harbinger, but that you know that was published much much later. Right. Right. So, because uh, where we, we discover that Simon was actually one of the first characters that uh, the Monitor brought aboard his satellite, the first to be summoned, right. and then we'll see him eventually in the first issue, just kind of lingering on the sidelines, watching as all the other characters arrive. Yeah, and then, but I do remember. I, I want to say it was a comic scene magazine, S C E N E. Mm -hmm. There was a magazine called Comic Scene. Mm -hmm. That that's where you could have seen. Pariah, maybe either before this issue or outside of this issue. So, I mean, looking at this cover, if you didn't, if you didn't see any promo image, you have no idea who those two characters are, Harbinger or Pariah. Um, totally new to the DC universe, and the little silhouette of Monitor's face in the behind her. Um, you know, interesting little details that uh, you won't really get until you delve in. But I think the image uh, seen in that comic scene magazine of, uh, of Pariah's uh, first uh, design uh, pics, I think it's reproduced inside the back cover. Oh, cool. Of issue number one. Oh, right. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's right. You're right. Yep. It's one yep, of those little things that you miss, folks, if you read these things in collection. Yep. Go ye and seek out the back issues. <laughs> um, and let me see. There's something else I want to um, – it is also interesting to note, and again, I will deal with this when we get into it, that outside of uh, outside of Legion of Superheroes, New Teen Titans, and I guess you can say All-Star Squadron, um, or maybe Firestorm, 
none of the biggies are are here. None of DC's big sellers are here. Again, outside of Legion was big. New Teen Titans was a big seller. Firestorm was a big seller. And so was All-Star Squadron. But there's no Batman. There's no Wonder Woman. There's no Justice League represented. You know what I mean? Like, it's really interesting that they they um, aren't using their heavy hitters. Yeah, and I, I think I can speak to that too. Um, there's one of the points I made in my my thesis, and again, for those of you who are uh, just tuning in now, um, I actually wrote uh, my master's thesis on the subject of Crisis on Infinite Earths. Uh, it was back in 2006. I have it sitting here on the table in front of me. It's like 152 pages long, counting bibliography and notes and all of that stuff. And uh, the, the basic uh, – well, the thesis statement was that DC uh, used the Crisis on Infinite Earths story as a, a kind of uh, ap- apocalyptic rhetoric, you know, uh, using the language of, ap- of uh, apocalypse stories and narratives as seen in mythology – you know, the, the biblical and, uh, well, ancient, you know, like Greek, or Norse especially and so forth, uh, as a way of uh, – a form of apocalyptic propaganda really to uh, secure longtime fans' approval for uh, the this uh, grand project of self-reinvention they were embarking on back in the mid-'80s and uh, also to, 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 by framing it in the form of this big apocalypse myth – um, for their DC Comics mythology, they were – by doing it in a story-based means, they were giving fans a kind of closure. This was like a uh, – well, one of the uh, writers I quoted in the thesis described it as an elaborate death ritual for the entire DC universe. Um, and uh, I, I argued that uh, one reason why uh, they uh, were at pains to use – well, for one thing, they were trying to showcase the – total diversity of the DC multiverse as much as possible. You know, what, what you mentioned earlier, Peter, about how they were you know, demonstrating uh, well, the, the, the historical range, you know, the range in time covered by the settings of their comics and characters. So we, we go from 45,000 years ago with Arion to the 30th century AD with uh, 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 Dawnstar of the Legion. Um, and it, it went even further than that. They go as far back as Anthro the Cave Boy at, at, at other points in the series and as far forward in time to the Lord of Time in, like, in the year 1 billion AD or whenever his stronghold is. Um, but so, so they're trying to just to show you exactly how much diversity there is in the DC continuity uh, right before they uh, pare away a bunch of the fat as as, as they th- thought of it and uh, just uh, streamlined everything down to one timeline and one universe. Um, but uh, in the course of doing this, they, they were at pains not to make this too much uh, a story about any one character, which brings us back to your point, Peter, about how these uh, – they weren't using any of their heavy hitters right off the bat. I mean, there is a Superman, but he's an alternate Superman. There's a, well, actually two alternate Supermen on the cover, mm-hmm. and uh, just you know, a representative of the Justice League, but he's one of the second tier members. Firestorm, um, a representative of the the Teen Titans, but he's one of their villains. Um, and uh, there's an Infinity Inc. person and an All Star Squadron person, but. Uh, so in, in order to prevent this from being too much a Superman story or too much a Flash story or too much a Batman story, this was meant to be a DC Universe story or a DC Multiverse story, if you will, the last DC Multiverse story. So uh, in order to prevent any one character from dominating the narrative, they um, you know, just uh, diversified the cast as much as possible and also laid many of the important narrative functions of the story on these uh, these unknowns, these newly created characters, which again, as you said, Peter, are featured prominently here on the front cover but would probably not be recognized by most people. Uh, yeah. Even those who were reading DC Comics at that time, if they hadn't seen that house ad or read that article in 
comic scene or seen any of the other you know pre-series uh, promotional uh, f- uh, publications or uh, or uh, news items in the fan press that uh, DC had allowed to go- get out there. So yeah, that's, uh, that's uh, one of the points I made in the thesis was that this was uh, as opposed to the traditional uh, the uh, Joseph Campbell style uh, hero mono myth. Uh, this is more of a hero multi-myth. It's a story not about any one superhero or villain character, but about an entire system of hero and villain characters. So uh, the, the, the decentralization of the, uh, the, the the typical hero myth tale type of you know, one monolithic hero figure. Uh, instead, we've got a whole passel of uh, heroic figures, many of whom are not really heroes by the traditional def- definition at all. So that's what we're seeing here, a whole mess of characters, different time periods, different uh, parallel universes, and uh, different moral codes, because uh, several of them are just on this cover are straight-up villains. Very true. All right. So um, I guess we'll, we'll throw a mention out to the, the text piece. Um, uh, there, there was actually a letters column in Crisis. Uh, it was called Crisis Mail. And uh, in the space that it ordinarily would take up, which is the, the inside of, of front and back covers, uh, we get a little essay called Crisis Beginnings uh, by writer Marv Wolfman, in which uh, he uh, well, uh, relates, uh, he explains uh, fr- from the perspective of, of DC editorial, you know, he kind of lays out the party line of the, uh, the, the hows and whys of the crisis story, why uh, the, the DC powers that be of the mid-80s felt that it was necessary to go about uh, uh, simplifying and streamlining the continuity and eliminating all the parallel universes. It's a story that's been told many times over, but it's kind of interesting to hear uh, you know, the, the first-hand account from the primary architect of the whole project, Wolfman himself. Who I forever in my notes call the Wolfman. Oh, because of Animal Man? Yep. Did the Wolfman <laughs> send you? <laughs> yeah. That's a quote directly from the Psycho Pirate, folks. That's all right. Um, I have nothing really to say about the text piece, so if you want to, if there's anything else. No, not really. It's like I said, it's just uh, Wolfman explaining why DC thought they needed to do all of this. Right. And whether you agree with their arguments or not, uh, it's, it's out there. Take a look at it and let, uh, let Wolfman speak for himself. So then on the first page, (laughs) this story begins. The origin of... Well, and right away, it's like throwing me – I already have a, a question about this page. So basically what it is, is this is um, – it, it's the Big Bang more or less, maybe, maybe not. Um, it certainly feels that way. I mean it's very biblical in the sense that the very first three words are in the beginning. Oh, yes. No doubt. Yeah. Um, and – you could look at this as the origin of the DC universe, the origin of DC multiverse. Um, um, in, in a four-panel page that has been replicated, or at least um, has also been sort of touched on as recently as Jonathan Hickman's Avengers. Even um, he kind of even uh, brought his own sort of twist to this opening of you know these four panels here. Um. um Boy, how do we want to do this? It's, it's, there's so much to this first page and without short of reading it, which is not what we want to do. But 
Uh, oh well, sure. We already have some. I think go we ahead. should read it actually. Okay, go ahead. It's, it, it's important. I mean, it, it's it's important to the core ideological project of the, of the whole series. So, okay. Um, actually, I think I'm going to turn this over to uh, the 2006 me for a little bit here and uh, read the first. Uh, yeah, I'm. No, call me self-indulgent, but uh, I have my thesis here with me, and I've. I, I'd like to read a few passages from it here and there where appropriate. Just because uh, I'm sure I put a lot of thought into uh, my analysis of this series back then, and I'm sure the 2006 me knows what he's talking about better than I do now. So uh, let's hear what uh, he has to say about this first page, which was a real tone setter for the whole series. Okay. Mercia Eli- Eliad, who is – that's one of the uh, writers uh, on Apocalypse Myth whom I cited in my, in my thesis. Mercia Eliad writes that the cosmic myth of origin and creation serves as the exemplary model for any ritual observance whose end is the restoration of integral wholeness, which is precisely what Crisis on Infinite Earths was intended to accomplish in the DC universe, and that creation myths are therefore ceremonially repeated on those occasions. He also notes that the mythical visions of the beginning and the end of time are homologues. Thus, it is unsurprising that Crisis on Infinite Earths opens with an account of the origin myth of the DC Comics multiverse that is about to die. I will quote this one-page prologue in full. In the beginning, there was only one, a single black infinitude, so cold and dark for so very long that even the burning light was imperceptible. But the light grew and the infinitude shuddered, and the darkness finally screamed as much in pain as in relief. For in that instant, a multiverse was born, a multiverse of worlds vibrating and replicating, and a multiverse that should have been one became many. Note the conspicuous appropriation of biblical biblical language and tone in the beginning, as you have already noted, Peter, and the subtle ideological inflection of the phrasing, most particularly the words, a multiverse that should have been one. This phrase takes for granted that there is, and always has been, something inherently flawed and unnatural about the multiversal structure of the DC universe. DC's multitude of parallel Earths, instituted in the 1960s in response to fan concerns about continuity, but perceived in the 1980s as a threat to the company's commercial viability, is here singled out as an aberration, a dangerous anomaly that compromises all of existence. This sentiment is repeated a few times over during the story, in a rather transparent attempt to guide the reader into accepting that the imminent destruction of the multiverse is meant to happen in order to correct something that went wrong long ago in the familiar world of DC Comics. So there's uh, uh, my thoughts from nine years ago about uh, all of that. Well, and some, so, some interesting things there. So did we, as readers, I'm trying to think, um, has that notion ever been brought up prior to what you just said, that notion that the multiverse is more or less a mistake? Um, you know, I, I'm thinking of uh, some All-Star Squadron stories where uh, the Spectre is holding two Earth-X and Earth-2 apart, you know. I had that saying, same image in my head now that you Yeah, you know, I wondered if he ever sort of went off on this uh, – little tangent of, you know... Not if Roy Thomas was writing him. Okay. Because you know Roy Thomas was all about the multiverse. Oh, sure. That's very true. Yeah. So that's an interesting notion that you threw out there, you know, the the idea that... Because that's something I know we talked about in a previous episode, is this whole idea... uh, Spoilers, I guess, more or less, but not really. um, That really, if you think about it, they, they, in essence, lost this battle. 
you know what they were trying to they were trying to save these earths and save these worlds and what wound winds up happening by the end is that it all gets meshed into one in a very alien world that they have no idea who's alive no idea what what part of their history is is around you know and, and they've you know they kind of lost this battle more or less you know mm-hmm. because the wolfman wanted it so you know <laughs> Uh, yes, and the the phrase I keep coming back to, which was I, I must uh, credit to a uh, crisis uh, chronologer, uh, chronologist is, is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, and, uh, and a footnoter, uh, uh, John Woodward, who uh, created the annotated crisis website. He, he observed that the uh, the post crisis DC universe was built on a foundation of corpses. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it was it was a, a kind of a major loss for the good guys and. Uh, and and uh, what you were talking about the the massive uh, global scale identity crisis everybody was experiencing it certainly didn't feel like the natural state of affairs to them at least not at first right now a couple things here with this okay so if we're to take this at face value that there's a darkness uh, 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 let me let me let me go here um it feels very big bang esque right from nothing came everything. Right. It's very, um, very Big Bang-esque, but also, as you observed earlier, very much like the biblical fiat lux. And then there was, you know, God said, let there be light, and there was light. Right. So going along those lines, what's always interesting is prior to this, and certainly within the this maxi-series, especially in later issues – we're always brought back to this idea that researching the origins of the DC universes causes major um, destruction. And the image that we're always brought back to is this giant hand in a swirling galactic mist or whatever you want to call it. And then – and that's like the earliest um, – origin of the DC universe. So I find it interesting that that's not what we're being presented here with. Well, that image does turn up later on, of course, but yeah, it is kind mm-hmm. of unusual that uh, that has been omitted. So that leads me to think um, a couple of things. Okay, so is is Marv Wolfman just quickly going through different beats? So, you know, you have the origin of the universe in general, but then the creation of the multiverse, which technically doesn't happen, which we'll find out later, until Krona, one of the Owens, one of the precursors of the guardians of the the universe, um, starts delving into the origins of the universe. And that's where two things happen, right? We find this out later. It's creation of the multiverse, and it's the creation of evil, more or less, Mm -hmm. within the universe. So is, you know... In between panel two and panel three, are we to assume that maybe there's they're just skipping over those details for because we'll find them out later? Um, you know why aren't we presented with the hand? Are we not presented with the hand because it did not happen in in DC history yet? Especially if we go later in this series where the anti it, it, it becomes the anti monitor's hand. That is the hand that technically – you know, you, you see where I'm going with this? Um, actually, I'm not sure I do. OK. So – and I knew, I knew this was going to happen. The minute I read this first page, I went, oh my god. We're going to have – I'm, I'm going to have to talk about a later issue. Um, 
So when the Anti-Monitor goes back in time, mm-hmm. and they and it's like issue, issue 10. I don't know, 10. Thank you. Okay. It was issue 10. Death so at the he, dawn of time. Right. So he goes back in time, and he is there in that white, just nothingness, and he puts his hand up, and mm-hmm. all of a sudden you see that same famous image. Right. He boasts and, that mine will be the hand scene right. cradling the nascent universe or whatever is the exact wording was. Yeah, I, I right. know that scene. Okay, yeah, and he's, and, he, and you can see Krona's viewer appearing out of nothingness and looking at the hand. And then eventually what happens is the Spectre you know, more or less has an arm wrestling match with him. Um, but, you know, this I – don't, I don't, I'm not trying to say that this is what Wolfman is, is saying. I'm sort of, sort of pulling it out of the story and, and knowing what's ha- going to happen later. If – in our reading of this first issue, um, the the, mo- the anti monitor going back in time hasn't happened yet, so his hand hasn't been viewed yet um, because that takes place at issue ten. But issue one, because we're seeing the birth of the universe, birth of the DC universe, but what we're really seeing is just light out of blackness, you know, and that's. That's not what we're going to be shown later to be the origin of the DC universe. So I was trying to mix the two, trying to make sense of, well, why are we doing it this way if in issue seven it's told us that Krona looks back and, and he sees – and Pariah, Pariah does it too. And he goes back and they see a hand and that's something – I just think it's kind of – Interesting that – I'm not saying that this is what it is, but it could be an interesting time loop parallel thing that that is really the anti-monitor's hand. Technically, is it? Is it not? You know, I think that, I think there's mm-hmm. something interesting about why are we shown this origin here, yet that's not this origin we're going to see later. Uh, well, you know, this, is, this might just be my uh, – Stubborn theism coming into play here, but uh, my, my, my thinking is that uh, that hand, the hand of creation, is the Anti Monitor's hand once, but it isn't always. Mm-hmm. And I think if you just if we looked at this first page and the events going on here, if the camera were to pull back a little bit, so to speak, and uh, and uh, the everything, uh, if we zoomed out. From this image a little bit, we'd see the, the image of the, the light from the blackness and the, uh, you know, the fireballs that eventually cool and form the planets and the, the spinning multiple Earths. We would probably see that this is all happening in the palm of a very – of a, a hand that is too macrocosmically huge to be seen on this page. Instead, it surrounds this page. So yeah, I, I'm, I insist on believing that there is – the universe or multiverse, whichever way you want to put it, is resting in the palm of somebody's hand. And it ain't the anti-monitors. <laughs> Fair enough. I just I was just wanted to throw it out there. I thought it was you know I, when I thought about it, I was like, oh, that's interesting. Why are we not? And then my other thought was, and this one I didn't research, but maybe you could throw throw something to it. I'll try. Um, how do how does this relate in hindsight with the origin of the DC universe that we got with Blackest Night? Ah. Uh. Well, I haven't read large chunks of Blackest Night, so, or I haven't yet read large chunks of Blackest Night, so I don't know if I can even really answer that. Well, what, what, what kind of origin were we told then? Well, the the whole thing with the white light being part of it, and the white light entity, um, and the, and the darkness and Necron and all that. I think they 
I, I'd have to go back to, and maybe maybe this is something a listener uh, who's maybe read it more recently, or you know, they can sort of pick up on. But uh, I thought it would be interesting to compare the two. Paging Cage Gnarly. Yeah, like that'd be right up his his alley. Ah, uh, but yeah, it's uh, yeah. Jeff Clock did pretty much what Marv Wolfman did here in 1985. Uh, Clock went ahead and did, and uh, did I say Jeff Clock? Good grief, Jeff Johns went ahead and did uh, with Blackest Night later on, which is to uh, play fast and loose with the established DC uh, chronology, uh, pull back a couple of curtains, uh, zoom back the camera to reuse a metaphor, and uh, to just show us uh, that uh, the shape of uh, the origins of the DC universe aren't quite what we thought they were because the writer of the story we're reading right now says so. So just as Wolfman took established truths of DC continuity and uh, subtly inflected them and sometimes outright wrenched them out of place to suit his needs, Johns did kind of the same thing later on. That is how storytelling sometimes has to work in a serialized medium. Yeah, yep. I mean, heck, uh, well, speaking of the things that more that uh, Wolfman was uh, well, taking out of whack of, I mentioned this on the, the last time bubble I recorded some six months ago. I actually talked about uh, Green Lantern uh, Volume 2, Number 40, which was uh, the, the, the story that introduced Krona and uh, the role he played in the birth of the DC Universe and the oh. end of the antimatter universe. And uh, it actually did not, even though Alan Scott of Earth 2 was, uh, he made an appearance in that issue. It was kind of an Alan Scott versus uh, Hal Jordan story. Um, the, the, the Earth 2 was kind of incidental to the main plot of the story. It, it's, we, we learned that Krona looked back in time and he created, uh, he, he was, res- as you said earlier, Peter, he was responsible for the release of evil into the positive matter universe. Uh, nothing was said in that story about uh, Krona's uh, experiments being the, the cause of the creation of the multiverse. That is something that uh, Wolfman chose to uh, graft on to that uh, the original story from uh, Green Lantern number forty. He decided he would just take that as uh, the origin of the, uh, the the Guardians and the Green Lantern Corps and make it also the origin of the entire multiverse concept that he was in the process of eliminating. Hmm. So, not, lots of revisionist not, history going on. Yeah, that's not the only revision that he he'll he'll tack on, but that's that's for a later issue. Yeah, one thing at a time. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Well, that's all I had for that first page. But boy, that was a lot. All right. Page two. Two and three, probably. Yeah, two. Right. It is a two-page spread. That was then. This is the planet Earth. A planet Earth. Right. Nothing really exceptional about it. Uh, no superhero characters that uh, we as the readers are shown. Now, uh, some fan chroniclers have uh, suggested Earth 5 as a name for this uh, nameless earth but it's the first one that we see die in the crisis series right yeah the, this two-page spread more or less is is getting us familiar with how things are going to happen how the destruction of these earths are going to happen um from the very first panel to the last it is a textbook um uh visual description of what every earth is going through uh, a white at this point, nameless cloud uh, destroying the earth, uh, usually a big city, mass panic, um, a showcase of, of how somebody could die if they, if they get absorbed into this wall, um, and then this eventual white nothingness being is absorbed by black, um, black nothingness, I guess you could say. 
So, uh, and then in the midst of it, we're introduced to um, the first of our main. If you if you want to think of the crisis having a main core set of characters, definitely Pariah is one of them, without a doubt. Yeah. So, uh, a nice way to introduce him without also having to deal with, um, as you said, other superheroes. You know, give him his his little spotlight and and sort of give the readers a view of okay, this is what's going on. Yeah, this double-page spread is one of the first things I think of when I think of Crisis, in particular, and, and certainly Crisis number one. It's just a, it's the fact that it is so basic, you know, by the numbers of textbook, as you put it. It, it just, it's, it, it establishes the motif that uh, will be encountered over and over again in various variations for the rest of the series. But it's the purest expression, I think, of, of the the. the the death process of the various universes of the DC multiverse, the death rattle of the multiverse, as, as Pariah calls it. So we get, we get the white wall, we get the you know, the fraying effect as uh, buildings and cities and uh, streets, and it, it, it all just kind of crumbles. And it, 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 it's almost like it's being digested. It, it's being broken down into bits, and then it just disappears. It, it's, it's dissolved into the, the antimatter, which we don't know what the, that's what the white stuff is yet, but it is. And uh, just that, uh, that big panel at the middle of the page that stretches from uh, the, the left edge of page two to the right edge of, edge of page three, of all the, these people, now not superheroes or supervillains, nothing, no, no, nothing like that, but uh, just just people running in terror for their lives, you know, young and old all together. Just uh, this, the, the two younger guys jumping on top of the cabs in their haste to get away. It's a scene of terror, panic, and chaos, and and it's just it's very well done, very very well. I'll even, I'd even say very well cinematographed by uh, oh, yeah. George Perez, because yeah. this is the sort of thing at which he excels. Well, one of many things at which he excels as an artist, just this this layout here and uh, the, the way it's the, the the body language of the characters as they flee, and it's. It, it it puts you in the right frame of mind. It, it, it bespeaks the disaster movie genre, uh-huh. and that's what this is. This this story is really on on one level. It, it can be read as a disaster movie. It's also it's got all the uh, you know the the mythological resonances and the cosmic import and all of that. But on one level, it's it's just a story about uh, lots and lots of horrible, disastrous things happening and uh, untold quadrillions of people across infinite Earths and uh, the other planets contained in the parallel universes of the DC multiverse being completely eradicated. Making the, uh, the 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 culprit of this whole thing, when he's finally revealed, stand out as the worst mass murderer, the multiple you know, genocidist uh, in, in DC's entire fictional history. But yeah, so, but but this really brings it down to the personal level to begin with, though. It, it, it puts us through the paces. It shows us how the the death of a universe goes in in the crisis story, uh, the white wall, the breaking down of matter. And uh, then everything is just reduced to white nothingness and then the black nothingness. Right. Yeah. In fact, uh, uh, let's see. I uh, Would you mind if uh, I, I let uh, the thesis uh, say a few words again? Go ahead. Sure. Okay. So since this is the pattern that's been stated here and uh, – Okay. Uh, This image of universal megadeath by reality-negating antimatter is a very important symbol. Described variously as a nothingness and an emptiness within the text, the antimatter wave – and again, we haven't 
heard it described as such yet, but we know that that's what it is, represents not merely destruction, but nullity, total non-existence, to which its victims, being comic book characters, are dangerously close to begin with. Indeed, the white wall of antimatter closely resembles the ultimate figure of nullity for fictional characters, a blank page. Now that comes from Jeff Clock, not Jeff Johns. That's a quote from his book, How to Read Superhero... Uh, comics and why well it's not a direct quote but it's it's the idea he's the one who suggested that uh, the white wall represents a blank page which is you know the ultimate threat of non-existence for a fictional character right that's something that uh, i have in my notes too about uh, not only here but um you know in a couple pages where we'll see superwoman uh disappear and that was something that grant morrison played with in animal man too where uh characters were um Sort of like that Looney Tunes cartoon where where Duck uh, da, uh, Daffy Duck was erased. <laughs> Duck they, amok. These, yeah, these characters are are basically regressed to simple line work. You know, like when when they actually like look at that boy. You know, he's got color, he's got detail. Then when he hits the cloud, it's really just the blue line mm-hmm. work of, of of an outline of a, of a person. You know, and I know. That happened with um, one of the characters in Animal Man. He was he like his color was taken out of him, and then he was his the inking was taken, and, and then he just became shapes, uh, you know, just just artist triangles and circles that you use to to, to start drawing a figure. Um, so this this whole idea, as you say, you know, it's it's it is it's it's literally it's it's not killing them, it's wiping them out of existence with probably no memory, right? Like it's, and that's exactly what this whole crisis thing, you know, it's, I made a joke of this whole thing about saying the Wolfman, but it makes you wonder, did he really know what he was doing by creating something called the, an antimatter wall or cloud that wasn't just killing these people, but literally wiping them from DC comics in in some version or another, you know, I think it's just really interesting. Yeah, the metatextual symbolism is potent to say the least. Yeah. All right. Um, all right. Let, let me dip back into the thesis again here. Okay. Just as water is the primal medium from which real human life emerged, the blank page is the primal medium for superheroes. And so in both the biblical flood and in Crisis on Infinite Earths, beings are reabsorbed by their birthing element with only a chosen few spared. Here's where we move on to the, the, that row of panels at the bottom, which are also kind of interesting in their own way. In apocalypse narratives that are less peculiarly keyed to the world of superheroes, blackness might make a better symbol of non-being than whiteness as a reference to the eternal primordial night, or nox, named in Greek mythology and elsewhere as the original null state of creation. However, since in crisis whiteness signifies absence or non-being, then blackness instead signifies presence. And indeed, the black mists that appear following the destruction of each earth in the opening scene seem to creep in a slow, deliberate manner, as if guided by a sinister intelligence, an image rendered all the more menacing by the eerie lack of narrative captions, which are almost irritatingly common elsewhere in the text, in the panels that depict it. The symbolism of the blackness is not merely one of annihilation and nullity, but of malice, of evil intent, of the presence of a definite enemy. In short, it is foreshadowing, in a rather literal sense. Mm -hmm. 
So that's what we get there. We, we don't always see the blackness creep in to uh, replace the whiteness. But some, uh, we see it here on this uh, the death of this first universe, and we'll see it a couple of other times too. And it's, it's sort of meant to give you the idea that there is a, an intelligence directing all of this. And the fact that there are no narrative captions there to tell you what to make of this makes it all the more creepy. Well, and it connects to that first image. If if out of out of nothingness came this white light, well, now we're going backwards in a sort of a sense. Um, and as we'll find out later, uh, you know, you can't the destruction of a positive matter Earth or universe has to be filled with something. Um, and we we will find out later that that it's an expansion of the antimatter universe. So. Is that black? Is that what we're seeing in that blackness as it's coming in, or is it just meant to, or, or really, is it really just meant to be nothingness? Like, um, um, is it an issue eleven where they take the uh, cosmic treadmill and try to go to Earth two, and there's just there's nothing there? It's just <laughs> it's a sucking void. Yeah, you know, it's it's a really, and it, and it is, and it's also again to sort of get too heady with it, but who is witnessing? the the blackness you know obviously we readers but and and mm -hmm. maybe the anti-monitor but right even pariah's gone by that point so it really right. is just us yeah i love the i love the panels the close-up of pariah's eye it's such a perez art thing you know you get a full body shot of him then you get his hand and he he brings out down the cloak and now you get closer to his face and then it's up on his eye and it's very sunken in with um black circles around it and um I love that that the little storytelling thing that Perez is throwing in there with all that dialogue. Dialogue that is is also very interesting because even Pariah doesn't have the language for this yet. Even though we're going to know that he's been going over this over and over again, he calls it the plague. He says swallowed by the dark. You know, he hasn't he doesn't even really have language for what's going on. Yeah, because he hasn't had the whole thing explained to him yet. Yeah. Eventually, he learns that it's uh, the monitor's fault that he has to relive this over and over and over again. But, uh, but at this point, you're right. He's, he's as much in the dark as anybody else. Yeah. And by the way, it's page three, and we've already had the word multiverse used three times. So, in, in this story? Yeah, in just these three pages. I was about yeah. to say, we, if we went back and counted how many times you and I have said the word multiverse in just the uh, 55 oh, minutes no. we've been recording so far. Yeah. Staggering. Uh. All right, that's all I have for those two pages. All right, fair enough. Oh, and let me point out another smart guy thing here. The uh, uh, pariah here seems to be serving the function of a, a kind of – well, he's a herald of the apocalypse. He's, he's like one of the final signs that in many apocalyptic traditions uh, always uh, presage the end of the world. So the appearance of this green-cloaked figure is kind of serving that purpose here. He also, along with a couple of other characters in this series, uh, most of them created for the purpose, you know, him, Harbinger, Alex Luther. Uh, he's a kind of a psychopomp figure, which in mythology is it's a, it's like a spirit guide, uh, often a deity, uh, who's associated in many mythologies with the, the conduction of souls to like the realm of the dead. So he shows up, and uh, your universe is about to be conducted to the realm of the dead. <laughs> I would also want to take note of the last thing he says on this page. Um, the last few balloons. He says, all right, uh, I'm disappearing again. Another Earth is to be swallowed by the dark. 
and I, I must attend as I have the hundreds which have died before it. Um, wow. I don't know how I've Drop been, the bomb. Yeah. I've been, um, I'm pretty far into the reading of, of these issues. I've been taking some notes. Um, and one of the things that keeps coming up is this idea of just how many universes have died. I know it says crisis on infinite earths, but there's a very real specific count that we're going to come across in, 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 I don't know if it's in this issue or in later issues. Um, so I just took notice of this now that he says, he's saying hundreds and we're going to, that number is going to tip all over the scale. <laughs> um, so, so it'd be interesting to keep note of just how many earths have died. An infinite amount. That's how many is right there in the title. Oh, it's in. It's there in the title, but it's not there in the narrative. Which yeah, is yeah, I, I know. I'm being silly. I know. But right. yeah, so but he to Pariah at least it seems like hundreds. It's, I'm sure right. he's lost count long since. But he's had to do with just the fact that this horrible tableau of cosmic destruction. It, it's not an isolated incident. That's what we're getting here. It, it, it's really oh, it, it, it echoes. Uh, it's a really, really baleful pronouncement uh, to the reader. It is, oh my god, this has happened lots and lots of times before. How many cool superhero characters that we never got to see have died in all of this? Yeah. Oh, and also the fact that he uh, tries to commit suicide. He tries to just let himself die along with this nameless, numberless Earth here on pages two and three, and uh, we, we see that he doesn't even have that option. Something is forcing him to... Uh, Something is compelling him, dragging him against his will from the, the death site of one universe uh, to the death site of the next. We don't know yet what exactly that is, and uh, Pariah doesn't know either, but we will by the time the story is over. Okay. All right, so moving on to the next scene then. Page four. Now we've seen this uh, little nobody backwater Earth with no superheroes to speak of uh, perish, but now the DC fans are being hit where they live. A parallel Earth that's been around for a while, been used in a, a few stories over the years. Mm -hmm. uh, it's Earth 3, uh, first appeared in... Um, Issue 29 of Justice League. That was when uh, the, the crisis, uh, the crisis, the crime syndicate of America, evil criminal versions of the Justice League were introduced. And that's what, that, this is the scene we're getting. Uh, one, let me see, one, two... Three, four, five. So for the next five pages, uh, you know, we'll go through page by page, but um, that's that's where we're at. Earth three, in its final death throes, death rattle of its existence, um, um, and we're just basically seeing it from a, a, a little more personal view from the heroes trying to stop it. Try not heroes. I'm sorry, um, the villains, but but acting in a very heroic. Maybe you could say selfish way, but they, you know, there's dialogue to fully admit or, or to show that they, um, uh, they're not being as selfish as you may think. They really are, you know, almost feeling helpless um, and and trying to save a world as they say that they've been trying to conquer for so long. Um, so I think it's uh, again what you said about uh, showing the not the importance, but just showing how big this story is that yes, it's going to affect the heroes, but look at what the villains are up against. Even they have to 
change who they are or try or put aside their differences to try to save their world. Mm-hmm. And I think yeah, this 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 scene is is interesting for that. Yep, it's a, it's the beginning of a theme too. It's uh, which is basically that uh, when all of existence is on the line, the uh, dividing lines between hero and villain are uh, less clearly drawn. Yeah, all of a sudden, everybody's on the same side versus this uh, you know, the supernatural extra-human threat to everything that exists. So all of a sudden – or you might also interpret it as uh, the uh, – well, their, their origins as uh, villainous carbon copies of essentially heroic beings coming through here at the end, allowing them to experience a little taste of what might have been if things had happened on Earth 3 closer to the way they happened on Earth 1, for example. Mm-hmm. All right. And, and, not, and just, just how close disaster is to Earth 1, right? If we, you know, most of DC's titles take place on Earth 1. If you were reading DC, it's all about Earth 1. Oh look, we're at Earth three. We're not at we're not at Earth two hundred and six. We're at Earth three, yep. which is you know is also very scary. And assuming that the and well, whoever or whatever is behind all of this is uh, following the uh, uh, the top forty countdown here. Uh, Earth is uh, <laughs> or the the mainstream DC Earth is uh, pretty clear. Its number is pretty nearly up. Okay, the crime syndicate have been a f- favorite characters of mine for a long time. Um, I, I own pretty much all of their appearances. Um, I even have the action figures of them. And I am talking specifically about the pre-crisis crime syndicate. Right. I've liked the things that have been done with them since then, Grant Morrison and Frank Whiteley's JLA Earth 2 graphic novel, for example. But I, I've, I've always preferred the original versions of these characters, you know, as visually designed by Mike Sikowski. And... Uh, uh, I'm pleased that uh, one of the uh, miniseries coming out of the Convergence event, uh, you know, soon to be published by DC, uh, is going to it's going to be about the pre-crisis Earth Three version of the Crime Syndicate. It'd be fun to see those versions of these characters again. Um, and I actually devoted a little bit of space in my thesis to talking about uh, the deaths of uh, the Crime Syndicate and what it might mean, what symbolism might be at work there. Okay, this is me reading deeply between the lines, but uh, indulge me for a minute here. Okay. However, the deaths of the crime syndicate and of Earth-3 have a deeper significance. As Jeff Clock reports, the Crisis series served other purposes beyond the simplification of DC's continuity. Quote, Crisis on Infinite Earths was not designed to simply change the DC universe, but to retroactively restructure it around a new organizing principle, the adult ethos of the 1980s. The very significant demographic shift that made the target audience of the comic book companies 18 to 24-year-old college-educated males. Comic books were now expected to tell stories for adults using the building blocks of children's literature. End quote. In a way, Crisis is a coming-of-age saga, a rite of passage for DC Comics and its fans, a myth of transition, not just between historical periods, but from juvenility to maturity. Like Shakespeare's Hamlet, it can be read as an allegory for the violent death of an innocent but no longer practicable way of life. As shadows of the Justice League, the crime syndicate are a manifestation of negative human traits that their pristine heroic doubles could not be allowed to have, traits that were sublimated, expurgated, and projected away from the heroes by their creators, only to resurface with a vengeance on Earth-3. 
The death of the crime syndicate parallels the death of the naive Manichaeanism characteristic of the golden and silver ages of comics, under which good and evil were seen as pure moral absolutes that could be kept separate on either side of the dimensional border between parallel Earths. With the crime syndicate gone, the flaws and fallibilities they represent could be reintegrated into the personalities of the Justice League, allowing them to exist as more three-dimensional, internally conflicted, morally complex characters in the years following crime. So there you go, the death of uh, the pure evil crime syndicate characters and even the fact that they had to act in a less than purely evil manner here in these pages of Crisis Number 1 uh, are a sign that uh, well, the, the superhero comics at DC are beginning to grow up a little bit. There will be more moral ambiguity in the years to come. In the thesis, I also point out that one of the first big hits that uh, DC had in the years following Crisis was Suicide Squad, which is all about uh, straight-up villain characters being forced to uh, act in uh, in the interests of, well, if not exactly heroism, then at least uh, the, the good of the United States in exchange for, you know, lightened sentences and parole and all of that good stuff. Well, don't forget uh, Dark Knight Returns and uh, talk about moral ambiguity. Oh, yeah, there's... Ton of it, you know, but, yeah. but, but by moral ambiguity, I, I mean more specifically the line between hero and vil- the roles of hero and villain. Okay. Yeah, but well, that, 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 your point stands too, of course. Yeah, I, but I like that notion what you said about sort of reintegrating facets of these characters because you know, in essence, isn't that what the multiverse was? You know, if you want to think of it in Elseworlds terms, right? You know, taking these characters that we know and putting them in new scenarios so that they can act in certain ways for a story or a story conceit or, or just to see them through a different lens, you mm-hmm. know? So I like that idea of reintegrating uh, that it's very much. Okay. So if you want to get even deeper with it, it's very much what happens with Harbinger, right? She splits and force gets forced upon her later in this issue a sort of negative uh, uh, being that, that, that contaminates the, the whole. Um, if you want to think of like Jamie Madrox in the, multi, in, in the Marvel Universe where each time he splits um, under Peter David later, you know, in the past like 10 years, each facet of each new body has like a new personality to him, right? Um, each duplicate of Jamie Madrox is, is different from from the whole um and and certainly that's a big thing here right each each duplicate of the earth is weaker than than it should have been one right Mm -hmm. so that whole reintegration thing is interesting and then there's and then okay so they reintegrate i'm just totally just speaking of what you said here um you know there certainly are people who thought post-crisis that the heroes got a little too gritty, a little too dirty, a mm. little too dark. And if you want to talk about degradation, uh, you know, look at zero, post-zero hour what what some of the heroes went through, and then you can go all the way to Flashpoint and the outcome of that. Some people have saying you know saying that uh, DC the New Fifty Two was the bleakest it ever was. Mm. So it's it's an interesting sort of. Um, uh, you know, little little chart. I'm sure somebody could chart this thing. You know, right? Yeah. You, yeah, we have to put infinite crisis on that chart too, because that was all about like a look back at uh, well the, uh, the the moral path of the DC universe and its characters since the first crisis. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. Uh, Superboy Prime and Alex Luthor passing judgment on uh, how far the heroes had fallen in those right. years. 
wanting to get things back to the idealized, uh, simpler, purer way that they used to be pre-crisis. It's interesting. To go along with that idea about these characters having to um, act in a more heroic way, I also thought it was interesting. Perez's artwork really kind of reflects a lot of, you know, he clearly knows Perez is a master. I mean, this is his, his magnum, magnus opus or whatever it is um he he uses the visual language of what he would draw a superman as for ultraman um you know i'm jumping ahead a little bit on page eight where he turns back to um power ring but it it's it's right out of you know christopher reeve winking at the camera you know totally Um, is yeah, even the face, and there's like a hint of a smile. Um, Power Ring kind of looks like Hal Jordan, but with a slightly bigger forehead. His his, his hair is receding a little bit right. more, and a little gaunter. Yeah, like the cheekbones protruding a little more. Long, his face is just generally longer and pointier. Yeah, and just the way they they move, they're not perfect. You know, there's the the. the the image of Ultraman flying there on the third panel on page four, he's, it's a little skewed perspective-wise, which is right. It should be. Um, and the way Superwoman holds back that wall of, of, of whatever that was, a building or whatever, and it kind of evokes Wonder Woman, but not quite, you know? Um, visually, I think he's, it's, he's using his, uh, his knowledge here of, of, of letting us know that, yeah, these are the characters you think they are, but they're not quite. And we should also note, obviously, if anybody's listened to the footnotes of JLA Avengers, there's a, a scene very much like this, even in that, um, where the crime syndicate is kind of like a kickoff point to some major disaster. So it sort of became a, you know, what, what you said earlier about creation myths being repeated. There are certain crisis elements that constantly get repeated Whenever we get back to the that 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 story idea, well, it might just be those uh, compelling uh, mythical archetypes uh, just uh, manifesting, well, willing themselves back into existence. Uh, it, it might just be an example of the, how uh, those are so deeply embedded in the racial memory that we keep using them over and over again. Or right. we could interpret it as uh, just a sign of the influence that the crisis uh, story has had. Now it's like forged its own uh, subgenre of superhero storytelling with its own uh, set of conventions, uh, which were largely established right here. Right. Uh, these, some of them in this very issue that we're reading, like the uh, on a more superficial level, I like the giant plug that uh, <laughs> uh, Powering is trying to use to stop the uh, volcano. The bottom of that same page, we get that cool uh, Perezian close-up, or we just see Powering's gaunt face and uh, his fist with the uh, sort of a chevron-shaped power ring that he wears. And he's saying, it's useless. I tell you, we're all going to die. Tight-lipped courage there from uh, the uh, (laughs) Earth-3 opposite of the the guy who's on Earth-1 is supposed to be without fear. And he is totally weak-livered here in these couple of scenes. He's he's kind of a... Pardon the expression, a whiny bitch yeah, in, the, he's, in this scene. And uh, when he and Ultraman show up in that uh, Grant Morrison Animal Man story we keep coming back to, he's he's kind of written in the same way. That's a good catch. I also like, um, you know, uh, coming up in a few pages, there's something very similar to this. 
the language that Ultraman use, uses. I've, he says, I've used my telescopic vision. And then he says, I've changed the course of mighty oceans. Don't tell me my super strength can't save my adopted planet. Um, uh, you know, if you don't know who Ultraman is, if this is the first time you're seeing these characters, I would have to assume if you have any familiarity with Superman that you're going, oh, well, this is clearly a Superman character here. Um, I just love that he uses – that Wolfman is, is, is using – letting him use dialogue that Superman would use. You know, it's just it's, – it's just great. It's really great. And uh, I'm going to make one of what's probably going to be a couple of mentions of a, a story that was published a few years before this. Um, it was also written by Wolfman, and uh, we, we touched on it in our top five uh, favorite multiverse stories episode. It was uh, DC Comics Presents Annual Number 1 from 1982, mm -hmm. and that was, I believe, the last Earth 3 story to see print before Crisis. So it was, in effect, the last Earth 3 story. If you don't count Crisis. Um, and uh, Ultraman was a part of that, too. And uh, Wolfman wrote him as a total braggadocio. Okay, So he's like this big, boastful, arrogant brute, none too bright and uh, stubborn and uh, just uh, bragging on his own. Just a kind of a, like a barbarian warrior chief is kind of the way he talked. And here he is. Uh, some of the edge is taken off of that, but you can still hear the, you know, the, the pride and the stubbornness in his voice as he says, Don't tell me my super strength can't save my adopted planet. He's a big lug, but at least he's putting his big lug to use, his big lugness to use to try to save well, some some innocents. I'm just looking here. They did they did show up in that Kurt Busiek two issue Justice League story that was was that before or after that DC annual? I can't remember. What was? Um, you know, do you remember uh, Kurt Busiek? Um, he wrote. During the um, Detroit era, oh yeah, he wrote two issues of a. It was kind of supposed to be the last JLA JSA team up um, story. Uh, it was called the Family Crisis, um, and, and actually, it happened right before uh, JLA Detroit hit, and the crisis, the crime syndicate showed up like in one or two panels that was it mm. they were stuck in the bubble, the oh, bubble you know what i'm remembering the uh, uh, crisis on earth prime crossover now uh you remember that it was between uh, the justice league of america series and uh, the all-star squadron series yeah that was back a couple years prior to this yeah yeah so now i'm trying to remember if that came before or after uh, the dc comics presents annual i was just talking about well, we'll find that out in a sec here while you're while you're talking about that, it was um, kind of uh, tied to the or while you're looking at it, tied to that annual. I did not know of Alexander Luthor before this issue because I had not read that. I don't even think I owned that that annual that you're looking up um, prior to this. I was collecting DC Comics Presents, but the the mom and pop store that I bought comics from, um, they would hold the annuals. Uh, behind the counter because they were a little more expensive. And if I didn't know that they were out, they wouldn't tell me. So I probably missed it. So seeing Luthor here, for all I knew, I just thought it was, I thought he was new for this series, you know, and I thought, oh, that's interesting. A hero? Wow, I didn't know that. Yeah, well, so, he was all but new. You'd really, he'd only had one other appearance before this. And yeah. 
So you hadn't you hadn't missed much, but uh, the little you'd missed was all there was to miss, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah, I've just found of of the, the Crisis on Earth Prime story was All Star Squadron number fourteen and fifteen, and Justice League of America two hundred seven, two hundred eight, and two hundred nine. It, it all happened in nineteen eighty two. Uh, which was the same year that that DC Comics Presents annual came out. Uh, so it probably did uh, happen maybe a couple of months after that story. And, and then the whole story, it was one of those weird stories that erases itself when it's over and done with, which is kind of what Crisis is, too, come to think of it. Right. Uh, so in a way, it didn't uh, it, it, it didn't really count because in, in the end, it didn't happen. But still, so there was one other cri- crime syndicate appearance between that annual. And, and in any event, the only crime syndicate member who appeared in that annual was Ultraman himself. And it was also the first appearance of uh, Luthor of Earth 3. Right. So we get a little bit of uh, Owlman and Johnny Quick here, who always seems to be called Johnny Quick, both names. They, they don't seem to want to call him just Johnny for whatever reason. Uh, and they're just kind of standing around acting as a uh, you know, Greek chorus to their own universe's death. There's a lot of that happening in this series throughout. Um, I've always been interested in uh, uh, on the uh, top right-hand side of page five when Johnny Quick says, uh, but now we're going to die just like the rest of the chattel. So Johnny Quick's uh, the little blurb about him in the crime syndicate's entry in Who's Who, the definitive directory of the DC Universe, just describes him as an arrogant super speedster. You can kind of see the arrogance coming through in a remark like that. And below that, he whines, why? Why did the gods give us these powers if we can't use them to save our own lives? Which leads you to wonder, you know, is uh, polytheistic paganism a major religion on Earth 3? Why, why is he making reference to the gods here? Is this a cultural difference? Hmm. Did Wolfman just think that sounded more like a something out of a Greek tragedy, maybe, if he had Johnny Quick mention multiple gods instead of just the one? Well, and, and what's the, what is it with Earth 3, the whole thing of um, – Well, yeah, there are some uh, big historical differences. It was yeah. Like a actor Abraham Lincoln shot President John Wilkes Booth. The British. Uh, yeah. Oh yeah, right. <laughs> oh yeah. Invaded America, or no? Discovered. Uh, yeah, the North America discovered uh, Great Britain. <laughs> right. So yeah, it's I, when we went over to uh, London for the first London Super Comic Convention back in 2012. I was sharing a pint with some of our British listeners, and uh, at some point they made some good-natured little rib at, uh, about the United States, and I said to them, "Well, just remember, on the evil parallel Earth of Earth three. We colonized you. <laughs> well, that's it. But that's interesting, though. Like, wh- who were who were the natives on Earth three that colonized? You know, maybe that is precedence for why they say the gods give us those powers. You know, I, I don't even know how the, how Earth three's <laughs> history could be anything like Earth ones or Earth primes if that's the way things went out. It, it, it's really just those details, like. Uh, Lincoln shooting Booth and uh, America right, colonizing right. Europe. Those are just random little things that whoever wrote that it was probably Gardner Fox just threw in there like little bizarro world, like little bits of bizarro business yeah. just to, to add texture and to, to make the kids reading who, who are assumed to be reading the stories laugh. Yeah. The, uh, the Morrison Earth 2 book though, wasn't there something about their money? It said something like in – is it Memnon or something like that? We trust Oh, Mammon. Of- Mammon, right? Yeah. Who's a god associated with uh, uh, with greed and uh, you know venality? Is it like a, a god of lucre? 
That, that's a, so mammon is often used as a figure of speech. He's like a, a metonym for just a, a greed and particularly corporate greed. Is he from a certain uh, – as from the New Testament? Well, I guess. Yeah, yeah. He's like yeah. A, a pre-biblical – he's it's like an old uh, pagan god from the, the Middle East. Well, there you go. Yeah, okay. so, so people who are said to – who have devoted their lives and have sold their souls to the mighty dollar, they're said to be worshippers of mammon. That's why. And while we're on the subject of uh, antimatter religions, uh, uh, characters on uh, the antimatter earth would often say God below instead of <laughs> God above. Um, some of that other uh, negative uh, reinforcement here when, when Luthor tries to say – try to warn Superwoman right away. She's, Luthor, what do you – and then she dies. Um, <laughs> emphasizing the you as if she's being very smarmy and, oh, what do you want? Yeah, the last person I want to be helping me. Yeah. But, and there again, the way she dies, it's, it's literally being erased. Just reduced to the rough sketches, the blue lines, as you said, and then gone. Yeah. The first name character to die in That's all right. of Crisis on Infinite Earths. You asked me that as a trivia question once. That's right. There she is. It is Superwoman, who is definitely not. You know, those of you who've read uh, Grant Morrison's JLA Earth Two graphic novel that we were just talking about, uh, on on that version of Earth, that antimatter Earth, that version of the crime syndicate, Superwoman is Lois Lane. But on Earth-3 pre-crisis, that clearly was not the case, as, as we'll see on the next page. Yeah, oh, yeah I was going to ask you about that too. I wondered where that came in and, and uh, did she ever have a name pre-crisis um, beyond just Superwoman you know, or was I, she – I don't think she ever did. I don't think we got much of her background. OK. We, we, she had a lasso that uh, could change shape. Is something I, I, I'm sure in some stories Wonder Woman's lasso could do that if the writer felt it was convenient. Right. But uh, most of the time it couldn't. But that was apparently the primary property of uh, Superwoman's lasso. Yeah. You can see it there on page five. She does. It is there. Um, it sort of blends into the cape, but in the fourth to last panel, it's right there at her hip. Never even gets a chance to use it. Yep. But yeah, I, I take your point about the way she's bracing up that wall of rubble, though. She looks more or less like Wonder Woman, but there's – it's more rough-hewn. You know, it doesn't have a Wonder Woman's grace. She looks angrier mm -hmm. and more savage. So yes, Perez knows his way around body language. And then we get uh, on page six and seven, when you were reading from your thesis, um, I didn't have a uh, – a phrase for it, and it's it's probably not the right right phrase either. But you know, in every great DC thing or event or destruction, you got to have a Superman story, a creation myth, if you want to say. And we are certainly getting it here with um, the last survivor of a doomed universe—not even planet, but a doomed universe. Mm -hmm. um, I love the spin on on the Superman thing. You know, again, if you're Familiar, if you're familiar with DC, this is this is going to resonate, right? And it certainly resonated with me. And it's like, oh my god, yeah, oh look, yes, exactly. It's okay, you know, just like the original, just how superheroes started with the birth of Superman, doomed uh, baby going into a rocket. You know, it's almost like the DC universe. It's getting its own sort of castaway. Figures on Earth-1, a Superman makes that journey, but uh, 
I'm pretty sure that in uh, the Earth 3 reality, uh, Superman well, – Ultraman came to Earth 3 as an adult. And yet here we have a Luthor escaping Earth as it, – it's – again, it's uh, the lines between you know, the, the mirror logic of Earth 3 and that of Bizarro World are sometimes uh, kind of difficult to draw. <laughs> but yeah. So yes. Um, so here on page six uh, – well, the, the first thing that Luther of Earth 3 says is gone as if she never existed about uh, Superwoman. Lord, though we battled time and time again, I never wanted her to die like that. And how many how many crime syndicate adventures did we miss between mm -hmm. DC Comics Presents Annual Number 1 and this? Only three years' time, and apparently uh, that was when Earth 3 Luthor first appeared, and not only when he first appeared, but when he first got the idea to put on a costume and uh, battle the crime syndicate. So that, that was not only his first appearance, it was when – it was his origin story. Mm. And uh, he got the idea to uh, put on a costume and uh, fight the crime syndicate from Earth-3's own version of Lois Lane. Mm. And, and she makes her entrance into the crisis story on this page also. Oh, and uh, oh, we, I guess we should also point out that uh, back on page five, when we first see Luthor of Earth-3, he mentions the word antimatter. Yeah. So that's when we f we finally learn that that's what this white stuff is that's wiping everything out. That wall of antimatter dissolves all it touches. I w I really would love to piece together all the various Jorel and Lara scenes and see how much of this dialogue here is 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 sort of on the nose, you know. Um our son is so young, he's been cheated out of living and knowing love. Alex must he perish too. Come with me quickly. There's little time. There's hope, which is which is definitely a word that's always used with a Superman origin. <laughs> there must be without hope, all is lost. Um, and even as he says that, the next thing we see on the next panel is uh, two longtime characters uh, ceasing to exist. Yeah, and they are lost. And I, I love how he continues because it's very sim – again, it's sort of similar. Like as if Jor-El was saying, the first time I learned that Krypton was going to explode, I found I thought of a way. I strove to find a way to, to you know, get us off this planet. Uh, this is only big enough for. I mean, all of it. You know, we will die, but our son shall live. Right? Like, where did Wolf? Did he, is he making it up on his own, or did he actually use some dialogue from previous Superman origin stories? I would love to make that comparison. I don't know if he, if Wolfman went back and actually looked at any actual. Uh, yeah, Jor El got and Lara scenes. He got the beats, though. Yeah. All the beats are there, yeah. Uh, he's got the tone right. Okay, so we've got the death of uh, Owlman and Johnny Quick. And then again, <laughs> Owlman's not just saying Johnny, Johnny. He's saying Johnny Quick, Johnny Quick. <laughs> <laughs> Barely time to finish his sentence, and yet he's using the character's full name. <laughs> Strange. And then in all this destruction, Pariah shows up. And he actually talks to... Power Ring and Ultraman and, um, you know, get we, we don't get much information on here, but uh, it's just another way to sort of uh, spotlight the, the villains. You know, he says, uh, I, Pariah says, I, I mourn for this world about to die. And as you said, Power Ring, then you cause this, I'll kill you for, you know, right away. He's just right to his roots. You know? Right. Yeah. Just head straight for violence. Because that's the way the crime syndicate have lived. They've lived by the sword, and now they're going to 
die by the blank page. <laughs> and Pariah responds to this threat of violence by simply saying, No, mine is not the hand which slays worlds. I can do nothing more than cry. Not exactly a forceful personality that Pariah has. No. But, uh, <laughs> when I met George Perez in my Pariah costume at... Uh, some people listening probably don't know this, but I dressed up as Pariah. It was a Halloween costume a bunch of years ago for you know those of us who were put on the Comic Geek Speak show. We used to get together at our friend Shane's house for a costume party once a year. And one year I dressed up as Pariah. And then a few of us cosplayed at the New York Comic Con. And I was I wore my Pariah costume again and introduced myself to George Perez. And he told me that he, as he drew Pariah scenes, he used to sing to himself, and they call the wimp Pariah, you know. <laughs> like, and they call the wind Mariah from Painter Mariah, Wagon. Yeah. Uh-huh. So, and this is on page uh, seven. That's the first time we get that name. He says, I am called Pariah. And he mourns for this world about to die. Although, who's calling him Pariah? Just himself. I mean, you know, who's, it's not like he's talking to people. <laughs> That's a good right? point. It's who else gets the chance to call him Pariah? Right. They die a couple of seconds after they meet him. Yeah. So, yeah, I guess that's something he invented for himself. I guess to keep himself sane, I suppose, he had to you know, craft this little personal mythology around himself. It's a little self-indulgent, right? Like, yeah, he's just valorizing his own sadness. Yeah. <laughs> he's totally emo. <laughs> Purple hair and all. <laughs> right. The black eye makeup. Man, that's, that was not a part of that My Pariah costume that I enjoyed. <laughs> More dialogue, more more Jor El, Lara, Superboy, uh, Superman, Kal-El dialogue. You know, on page eight there, my love. As the world ends, our hopes and prayers live on. I know where other heroes live; they will care for our son. Um, so, referring again to that uh, DC Comics presents annual in which uh, Luthor of Earth three was lucky enough to meet the Supermen of Earths one and two, as they yeah. teamed up with him against the Luthors of Earth one and two and the Ultraman of Earth three. And I really – I can't help but really sort of just look at all this dialogue and, and think, you know, because he says here right in page eight, the last – second to last panel, our time together has been all too brief. Yeah. Yeah. You know. Since 1982 when that annual came out. Yeah. So apparently yeah. you had plenty of time to battle the crime syndicate a bunch of times, but uh, you haven't been with uh, Lois all that long. Yeah, that was the first – that was when Lois of Earth-3 and Luthor of Earth-3 first kind of met because Lois found out about the scheme that the two Luthors and Ultraman had. And she went to Luthor and uh, asked – apparently she'd done a story on him at some point because she's a reporter on Earth-3 too and uh, knew that he was like a, a, a leading scientist, a major genius and uh, thought that maybe he – could uh, come up with something to stop this scheme, and uh, Luthor responded by putting on the, this costume and using his science to fight the syndicators. And that's how these characters came together. And then Lois, for her part, says, And you've given me more love than I had any right to expect, my husband. Which leads you to wonder what, what kind of shady things were going on in her past. And she is the Lois of Earth 3, so if that's a moral mirror world, if the Lois of Earth 1 is a good, decent person, then what, what may have what, – what's been going on in the checkered history of Lois of Earth 3? Yeah. Yeah, interesting note here. Um, 
This is one of the few times when I've found uh, comicbookdb.com, which is one of my favorite online resources for comics uh, research. Um, They got something wrong. Uh, Lois of Earth 3 actually did not make her first appearance in that same annual with Luthor of Earth 3, the DC Comics Presents annual number one. She first appeared in Secret Society of Supervillains number 14. Mm. Uh, There was a crossover story where the... The secret society on the lamb from Earth-1 accidentally found themselves on Earth-3, had a run-in with three members of the crime syndicate, and uh, Captain Comet, who was like the uh, antagonist of that series, he was always chasing the secret society and trying to bring them to justice, he found his way to Earth-3, was injured there, and Earth-3 Lois Lane found him, brought him to a hospital, and helped nurse him back to health. There was a little bit of romantic tension between the two of them there. And then the next time you see her is that DC Comics Presents annual by Marv Wolfman when she recruits Luthor to uh, thwart the, the other Luthor's scheme and uh, gets him to become a hero. And then the two of them get together romantically and apparently marry and have a kid. So she seemed to be a fairly uh, you know upstanding young woman in that uh, issue of Secret Society of Supervillains. But uh, <laughs> you never know if maybe <laughs> – Maybe she did some things in her youth that she wasn't proud of, some you know, seedy Earth 3 stuff. Yeah. Part of that I wonder if – I mean obviously Comic Book TV is user-driven. Uh, so well, Yeah, it's, it's crowdsourced stuff. So Yeah, they probably neglected to put her in there. But isn't it also too that – don't they – isn't that series usually meant to take place – it's not apocryphal, but it's sort of not exactly in continuity usually. Sometimes it is, but sometimes it's not, right? Secret Society of Supervillains? Yeah. I used to get um, – um, I'd have to find the article where I read that where because of certain things that happened within it, um, it's also where we get the, the – you know, isn't that where the one star sapphire, she's not quite the same? Oh, right. Debbie Darnell. Yeah, yeah or – Hmm. Or is that the – yeah. Yeah, she speaks with a French accent the first time she appears and that sort of drops somewhere along the way. But yeah, she was supposed to be a stewardess – a flight attendant uh, Debbie Darnell. Right, that right. That was her other identity. And she does show up later in, in um, right around Infinite Crisis and all that too. But Right. Yeah. Um, yeah, I always got the feeling that that series was sort of – just left of center off the main line, but I'd have to find out where I, I heard that from. Yeah, I, I'd never heard yeah. that myself, but then again, I'm, I've am i always loved the Secret Society of Supervillains series. It's one of my favorite little Bronze Age oddities, and mm-hmm. I, I just kind of want it to count. So, Yeah, right. It's in your personal uh, continuity. Exactly. Yes, my Riosian personal continuity. <laughs> um, I also like that... Um, We've seen all these people die, but uh, you know, tragically. But the Luthors get uh, a, f- a farewell kiss. Right. They, they they go out a little peacefully, more or less. Right, a beautiful death. Yeah. And the last and words we, they speak are "I love you." Outside of Morrison's Earth Two, we don't see these characters ever again, right? Um. Well, I think maybe in Infinite Crisis when uh, Alex Luthor is recreating the various parallel Earths and uh, indiscriminately merging them together again, I think you do see a glimpse of uh, his father uh, with his red goatee and his helmet. Okay. So then we get – you want to go on to page nine? Sure. A little bit of interesting different point of view of seeing how that antimatter – we can start calling it the antimatter wall now – 
is wiping out the, the left, the remaining portion of Earth 3. It's always interesting, too, that uh, the universe dies when Earth, when the Earth of that universe is absorbed, right? right I mean, I know. That's the last thing to go. Yeah, you know, uh, for obvious reasons, storytelling reasons. Yeah, and and Jeff Johns gets into that a little more with Infinite Crisis, revealing that yeah. Earth is like the the linchpin of all reality, and right. it's, it's the most important world in every universe, except for the one universe that contains Oa. Right. Yeah, but I love how the the ship that they put little Alexander Luthor Jr. on, um, how Perez has him, lit- he's. Flying out of a panel before it can get absorbed, and and you know, uh, flying through these breaking, well, not even breaking the the, the boundaries of the panels, fly, floating over them. Yeah, it just turned, well, It seems to be turned into a trail of energy. Yeah, like a, a, a kind of a long lightning strike. So yeah, um, it, it's it's not breaking through a panel so much as it is you know, phasing through it. Yeah. And and just barely missing the the encroaching blackness as you know, which right. the foreshadowing that you were called called mm-hmm. it before. Right, so clearly a tendril of black smoke moving as if directed to consume the, and engulf the entire panel. Yeah, and this was the the sequence here, this sequence of seeing this uh, vessel flying out, and with later dialogue that kind of made me think, oh. So, and I think I knew this, but I guess it never really sort of cemented, but that just like, um, I think in the Marvel universe, they say that there really is only one negative zone. And regardless of what reality you are in, if you go to the negative zone, it's always the same negative zone, I think. Um, and I wonder if that's sort of the same here is that even though there's a multiverse, if you go to the antimatter universe, it is the same antimatter universe, no matter which Earth you've come from. Right. I think so. Yeah. And actually, uh, you know, the aforementioned Cage Gnarly hit me up a little while ago to ask me if there was ever any mention of like multiple antimatter universes or just the one antimatter universe. And I'm pretty sure that there never has been more than the one. Right. At least not more than one at a time. You know what I mean? Because later on in this story, the antimatter universe is actually destroyed. The antimonitor converts it to energy and consumes it in order to power his trip back to the dawn of time. Mm -hmm. But then by the the finale of the series, the antimatter universe has been reconstituted just like the the positive matter single universe has been. But uh, but I don't think there's ever been an antimatter multiverse. Like you said, it's always just the same antimatter universe no matter what uh, point of access you use to reach it. Yeah. And the little vessel carrying Alexander Luthor winds up on a, uh inactive JLA satellite above the Earth because at this point um, – The JLA are into their Detroit bunker era. Right. They just, they just went through a whole um, – Martian war, Martian Earth war. Involving uh, the white Martians, right? Um, at this point, no. The um, Martian Manhunter had been away for a while. Um, he, he hadn't been on the team for a long time, and he comes back to the Justice League. Um, and uh, chasing him are just a, a group of uh, regular green Martians and he has a big battle with them and they destroy the satellite and um, 
yeah, I'm looking at the covers here, and there, there's it's green Martian versus green Martian. So I don't think, I don't think the white land, the white Martians, was that a Morrison thing for JLA, or was that before that? Oh no, there, there were definitely, uh, uh, there had been uh, white Martians uh, skulking about in the DC universe before Morrison. Okay, yeah, okay, he was just picking up on an earlier plot thread. The name Commander Blanks stands out in my mind as the name of one of the, the leaders of the White Martians. Okay. Yeah, that was – I mean I was I was really – I was in Justice League at that time. Jerry Conway and Chuck Patton and um, I, you know, that, that whole Martian war thing and all of a sudden the, the satellite just got destroyed and you're like, what? What's going on? Um, just really flipped me out. So I love that uh, it's being touched on here. Yeah, and a little craft that shows up there. It, it looks like a child's top, and it uh, is actually overtly described in the text as a top. But the top spins onward, vibrating between dimensions, moving from one that is dead to one that soon might be. So yeah, it's it's, it's supposed to. It's well, back on uh, page eight. You can see it spinning around in place. Mm-hmm. The motion lines there. So it's instead of a rocket ship, it's uh, at the top. It's like a, a child's toy. Can read that as a symbol of lost innocence, I guess. Well, I guess that makes sense too, right? If it's going to go, it's sort of established within DC Universe that to transverse worlds, it's you got to do it vibrationally. And I think doesn't he even say it something about vibrations and um, yep, vibrating between dimensions, right? And a spinning top that that kind of makes sense. It doesn't have to be rocket propelled; it needs to be something else propelled. I strove to find some way to bridge the vibrational gap which separates us. Yeah, but I guess it must also move from spot to spot because it, it, it's, it has to it, – it's clearly taking off. It, it's right, going yeah. straight up into the air. It's Because he wants it to go to – it has to find a point in orbit around Earth-3 that is analogous to uh, the point in orbit around Earth-1 where the JLA satellite would be. Right, yeah. So Good it's point. both a spaceship and it's a transmatter cube, I guess. Right. Transmatter top. The headquarters has been abandoned and its electric life ended. Oh, poor satellite. Right. Well, poor Alex Luther. Yeah, just stranded there. Stuck there amid that scene of desolation. A scene that's echoed now that I think of it. I mean, isn't it at the beginning of Infinite Crisis? Isn't there a confrontation between uh, Superman, Batman, and Wonder Woman uh, amidst oh, what, yeah. what's left of the JLA Watchtower? That is correct. That that scene is uh, sort of what I use to base uh, my idea that I that it, unlike Crisis, what what you just talked about, how you said you know Crisis really belongs to every character or or, or no character or whatever. Um, I really felt that uh, if you look at you, you could look at Infinite Crisis as really being Superman, Batman, and Wonder Woman's story um, because of that scene, um, and then it ends with that scene, and all of their different families are being affected during the thing, and you know, it's it really when I gave it a reread with that under that sort of microscope, it, it became a whole other story. Which I thought was was pretty interesting. Well said, and I completely agree. Well, Tale of the trilogy of uh, the tr- Trinity. Trinity, yeah. Also, a tale of the rest of the DC universe, but yeah, well, sure. Core, yeah. It's about uh, well, reconciling the Trinity to one to another. Yeah. 
10 and 11. Let's see where we get on these next three pages, three, four pages, and see where we go. Because right. this, we, let, let's at least get to something close to seeing the monitor <laughs> or, or the main point of this story. No, we don't have much further to go for that, sure. Yeah. Well, we get a nifty little Perez, well, Perezian transition here. There's a little segue at the bottom of page nine. All right, so we've got a dead satellite, quote, while elsewhere another satellite burns with life. And so we, we get an image of a little... It kind of looks like a, a heavenly body, possibly even the sun. But uh, as you look at it more closely, it uh, it, it might actually be another uh, spherical entity floating out there in space, one that we've seen many times before. The satellite. Right. The one that's been popping up all over DC Comics uh, throughout the whole of 1984. And finally, the scene shifts over there again. The summoning. The summoning. Very ominous sounding, doesn't it? Yeah. Again, and we finally... Apocalyptic terminology once again. You know, It makes you think of you know, Gabriel showing up at the end times and blowing his horn to signal the beginning of the battle between good and evil and to resurrect the dead, which is something that's supposed to happen uh, in, in some apocalyptic uh, folkloric traditions. You know, some biblical scholars think that's what's going to happen. So, yeah, the summoning—it's got just—it's just got that, that that ominous ring to it that makes you think about uh, you know, something really bad about to happen. Might just be the primal fear of being summoned to the principal's office, too. <laughs> anyway, it, it's it's a good title for the first issue here. It uh, tells you about the gathering of characters that's about to happen, and it, uh, it just generally sounds ominous. So there you go. And what's a monitor satellite without a whole bunch of monitors, right? Just (laughs) two big monitors right there across the two pages and then a whole slew of little circlets um, with various scenes of either different landscapes and destruction. And and we're at Earth-1. This is, you know, even though we have have we – oh, yeah, in the previous page it says Earth-1, so – we're back on uh, familiar territory. Oh yeah, because we you know we transfer from uh, the JLA's satellite, which is definitely orbiting Earth one, to uh, the monitor satellite, and aboard monitor satellite, we can see through one of those big windows uh, the JLA satellite in the distance. So yep, no doubt about it, this is definitely Earth one. And as you pointed out earlier, Peter, there's a caption right there that says July 1985. Right. Still a couple of months in the future for those reading it, uh, who, who read this as it was published. And the closest image, I guess, so far that, um, you know, they're up on the upper upper panels in the middle there. Um, if we, you know, that's about as clear an image of mo- the monitor that we will get uh, until the final page of this issue anyway. Extreme close-up of his face. And those, and those brows of his. Oh, yes. Um... Got to make mention of the creative team. We finally got the creative team listed here, uh, written and edited by Marv Wolfman, Mm -hmm. penciled by George Perez, inked by Dick Giordano, lettered by John Costanza, colored by Tony Tallinn, and the plot by Marv Wolfman, Len Wein, and um, Bob. Bob Greenberger. Bob Greenberger. Yep. Bob Greenberger. Yeah. Who were originally they uh, Wolfman and Wein were supposed to co-write this thing. I'll call this your crisis fun fact here, but uh, that then uh, Ween was being seduced more and more by the companion volume, the the Who's Who, 
the definitive directory of the DC universe. And uh, Rob Greenberger, who's a big um, comics historian, you know, trivia buff, uh, he so Ween and uh, Greenberger ended up uh, just. Splitting off and concentrating all their energies onto the Who's Who series, and uh, Wolfman was left to uh, script the thing by himself. But uh, apparently, with some uh, lingering plot input from uh, Len Wein and Bob Greenberger. Um, just to go along with some things that I've read about the creative team, um, I, I remember Perez talking about going into a comic store and picking this issue up, and. Uh, this paper, I think, is I think it's called Flexograph or something like that, where they were just trying it out on this, and 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 it was supposed to be this new paper, and it was supposed to be hardier and you know better quality, and and all he could see were all the color separations gone wrong, all that magenta all over the place, and um, not quite lining up. Um, I don't know what your copy's like, but even later on, you can just see some real big mistakes uh, on page like 19. Um, character, their skin tone isn't even on there, and um, you know some some colors not quite hitting the border. And Perez was pissed um, because this new, whatever this new process was, it just it just butchered it, just really butchered it. Mm. Yeah, I see, I see what you mean. I'm looking at page 19 now, and uh, yeah, like the upper lip of uh, Ted Cord is uh, whited out, and uh, there's a big patch of white flesh on uh, Harbinger's back on the second panel of the top row. Hmm. That's interesting because my in mine it's the whole half of the page. They're they're just white. They're all white. Um, and the double page spread of all the heroes on page 26 and seven. On the left, every skin tone is is almost white. There's there's no peach color until mm. you see Simon on on the right there. So he uh, like Superman symbol. It's all yellow instead of being yellow and red, and his cape is yellow. It's like the red just got sucked out. Well, I must have a better edition than yours. Yeah, because I, I don't have any of those problems you're describing. Yeah, mine is my, and it wasn't until I got like. I don't know the trade, or I do have here the um, Millennium Edition that they put out of Crisis Number One. Right, right, right. Part of that whole series of Millennium Editions of uh, key issues. Yeah, and they they updated the coloring a little bit here and there. So uh, I was like, oh, I guess you know that's. I should really pick up another issue, a couple issues, and see just how different it is. Mine is really reflective of that problem. Well, there's one. A good argument for reading this series in trade, I guess, because I also have open on my lap here the uh, you know the the hardcover slipcase edition, mm-hmm. the one that came with that uh, with, with the, the the wraparound Alex Ross painted cover uh, on the book jacket, and it's uh, one of the things that they did was they, they amended a couple of things, fixed a couple of typos, uh, but they also recolored the whole thing, and it wow. uh, it does look a whole lot better. Yeah, and uh, I've taken some notes about. Who is inking which issue and what they bring to the table or what they take away from the table. And also uh, the colorist changes midway through the series. So uh, um, this issue with Dick Giordano, not quite the Perez 100% visuals that um, we would get with maybe – well, obviously when Jerry Ordway gets on the book, it really becomes – what I think is the look of Crisis on Infinite Earths. 
Um, Dick Giordano takes away a little bit of some of Perez's line work, or, or I should say you see a little bit too much of Dick Giordano, you know, um, he always has an inking style that I seem to always kind of go, Oh yeah, there's Dick Giordano. Um, um, and it, it doesn't, it's not like, I'm not saying it's bad. It's just, you know, when you look at the cover detail and then you look at the inside, um, when Perez inks himself or when you get an inker on him that, um, really helps to embellish his artwork. Uh, it's a, it's a, it's a much more natural fit. I don't think Giordano was a good fit for, for Perez. But he was executive vice president of the company, so... Yeah. He probably said, I'm getting my name on this somehow. <laughs> I think he was one of those who had a lot of input into yeah. uh, just the, the decision to go forward with this project in the first place. I don't know how much impact he had on the plot, but uh, it's just it's the basic idea of uh, rebooting and retooling the continuity. Uh, and they certainly... He was, he was definitely involved in that in some major... Because he, he said as much in some of his meanwhile yeah. columns. They certainly had to go through him and Jeanette Kahn about who they were going to kill off and change and all that. Yeah. And Jeanette Kahn was very game about all of that. Well, that's one thing that we, if we can go back to the you know, Marv Wolfman's text piece essay here, he says he has has to give uh, recognition to Jeanette Kahn, who, in, who quote insisted we be more daring, more bold, not to be afraid to make even larger and more significant changes. To that end, she suggested several ideas which absolutely stunned us. And about Giordano, since we're on that subject, uh, he serves not only as inker for the crisis, but is a DC vice president. His guidance, ideas, and general trust in this project made it a reality. Straight from Wolfman there. So we finally get Perez's version of Lila. What do you think? Well, she's a rather more modest dresser than we've seen uh, at some other points. Lost some of the, uh, I don't know, Lonnie Anderson hair and uh, posturing. <laughs> yeah, so she now comes off as, I don't know, more more brooding and ethereal. Got that long flowing... Uh, cloak or robe that she wears with a funny you know <laughs> magenta again as you said there's magentas bleeding all over the place and Lila's probably most to blame and uh, those weird hippie fringe sleeves she's got going on there yeah I love her dialogue it's so, it's so against uh, all most of her other appearances that we've seen here right where she says I'll do as you ask but I, I, I suggest you remember we are equals I will no longer tolerate being treated as your slave. <laughs> or your secretary, apparently. Yeah. Or your... Or... Go on. I was going to say, or her uh, bimbo. <laughs> yeah, it's, 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 it, it runs counter even to a couple of appearances of hers that uh, Wolfman wrote. So apparently Wolfman had... Uh, uh, he wrote a couple of those monitor cameos leading up mm -hmm. to all of this. So he, I think his idea – I think I read someplace, and I probably mentioned this in one of our Monitoring the Monitor episodes, that uh, a memo circulated to the creative teams of the various DC series that were going to feature monitor cameos describing the monitor, uh, his, um, his, his appearance or lack thereof, and uh, his motives, and uh, also a little something about his aide bon – uh, uh, Lila, and I think the phrase dumb bunny secretary was actually used. She's clearly not that anymore. No, I mean, and she's so very obviously a a entryway for readers for all of our questions, right? You know, the, yeah. 
She I seems, failed to understand. Go ahead. She seems more like a, a magician's apprentice at this point than she does yeah. a secretary of any kind, dumb bunny or otherwise. Yeah. Why not both Supermans and Wonder Womans? Why not the most powerful? Um, Which is a very valid point and I'm sure one that a lot of uh, comics readers were asking themselves or were, would be asking themselves as they see which characters actually are selected for this uh, away team. And uh, Monitor gives his in-story answer. And we've already given our extra textual answer to the question of why they didn't just go with uh, all the heavy hitters. Right. Um, I do like what he says, too, about, you know, so so he says, our greatest hope lies with both so-called heroes spelled wrong. <laughs> H-E-R-O-S as opposed to H-E-R-O-E-S. Uh, and villains fighting alongside each other. But then he says, yet another alternative has been made available, one I could not have expected. So even, you know, the, the, that was another note that I had in, as I'm reading through these issues is what exactly is Monitor's plan? And, <laughs> and it, you know, even from here, it's already changed. Yeah. What exactly is Marv Wolfman's plan? Yeah. You it know, changed like, in mid-swing a bunch of times during this series. Really? It really did. And it's sort of keeping track of that has been, has been comical. <laughs> Yeah, we, we have milked a few yucks out of it, yeah. yeah. And I'm glad you mentioned the misspelled word heroes because that is an example of something that was fixed in the hardcover edition of Crisis. Okay. Yeah, they respelled it H-E-R-O-E-S. So what does he say? Uh, Lila energized now while I retrieve the infant sent from Earth-3. And uh, here's our first first of many probably parallels to the whole problem that we're dealing with, you know, one becoming many and each one being weaker than the original, you know, where we finally see how Lila has been able to um, go across the DC universe all at once because she is able to replicate her body as Harbinger. You know, maybe some of her duplicates are smarter than others too. Who knows? Yeah. Yeah, well, that's, that, that's a good point. Yeah. Although we always... The differences always were when she was as Lila, so right, yeah. And she attired herself rather differently, uh, like lavender. Well, it's always magenta, but sometimes uh, those cat suits she would wear uh, were more orange in color, and they had these right. very, very t swooping necklines. Not here, though. I like this. Uh, she reaches deep within herself, deep to the center of her being. And she senses each atom within her as an independent force. The universe once divided into many parts, each one different, yet somehow weaker than the whole. Now each part suffers for that weakness destroyed one after another because the very fabric of their being is too weak for its total defense. And now she, like the universe, must replicate as well. She must divide her power among many, yet with each, power, uh, each with power, yet each powerless as well. So she becomes a microcosm for this uh, allegedly vulnerable multiverse yeah. that uh, Wolfman is trying to sell to us. Which, you know, as a kid, I don't think I ever really got that. Like I, I got the idea – I got the notion that she was splitting, but I never really probably fully understood the, the comparison there. So it's kind of you know fun looking back and really yeah, analyzing just yeah. how how hard it was hitting you over the head with it and uh, yeah as a kid well, you just don't see it and and to 
you know, okay, so we met Pariah, and now we're meeting again. If you haven't read anything before this, you're meeting the next big player in this thing, no. and arguably, even if you have been reading the Monitor appearances, you're still meeting this character for the first time because that's he's true. Good so, point. So different from the Lila that we'd seen in those cameos, yeah. and you know, I just her name sort of. Both of their names, Pariah and Harbinger, sort of precede themselves. So they kind of give like a very blank sort of – or one-note um, kind of uh, personality to them. Pariah, Pariah. OK, that that screams everything that we just talked about, that character. And Harbinger as someone, you know, almost like a herald. And But yet there is a lot more to her um, even within this whole uh, – it gives a reason why she should be the one that sort of understands what the hell is going on because it's within her power to do so. Um, and uh, I like that. I like that their it's their names are super descriptive and super super you know the uh, sort of like hitting you over the head. But you dig a little deeper and you go, oh, okay. So she's just she's basically the example. She's the epitome of what's been going on, and um, because she goes through a few changes later on in later issues too. Absolutely, yeah. She kind of flip flops a lot, and until she sort of stands up and finally takes charge, and and um, it's kind of it was interesting to to track her journey through through those issues. Mm-hmm. Yep, she does indeed go. She wears a lot of hats in this story, yeah. but uh, here here she's uh, starting out as a. Uh, as I call her in my thesis, Nuntius Dei, which is fancy Latin for a messenger of God, a heralding angel sent to gather those chosen by her master in preparation for the end times. And off she's off to the races. Yeah. But uh, we uh, don't see her... Uh, well, well, before she really heads off, we, we have a couple of extra panels of uh, the monitor. Right. Very important. Top of page 13. Yeah, I, he says, again, he says, for months I've observed the multiverse and the many planet Earths. Months? Really? Just months? Time, been... time is fluid, time is relative. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, if you think about um, all those monitoring, the monitor issues, the earliest appearance was in um, New Teen Titans issue 22, 21, and that was well before the lead up to this to, to where where they really were showing up in the DC universe it was like a two panel thing um where monitor is watching raven and starfire because there's some bomb in a baseball game or something like that <laughs> um and i think i'm not even sure if lila was part of that um yeah, i don't think i think you only saw like the an external shot of the of the satellite right and it was gray it wasn't even gold it was like silver or gray or something like that it changed colors a few times but yeah it's we've already colored have covered how inconsistent coloring tended to be yeah at this uh, point in comics publishing history so that was a good two maybe even three years before this uh sir so i think so that's interesting you know he says months but you know in our time it's been years um and then he says, well, let's see. When all is ready, doubts begin to form. I see my own death as well as the death of worlds. The future comes as it will. I can only help prepare the many pathways it may take. The Luther child, I need him now. 
the many pathways, the universe. It's that talk about, you know, what Wolfman was going through. He was like, look, here's my idea. Here's what I think should happen. I can prepare you for all of it. <laughs> but what comes after ultimately, I guess, is all up to you writers and you editors. And that's exactly what happened. <laughs> Good reading, Peter. Yeah. yeah, I like that interpretation. I wrote here, I said, boy, is is the Wolfman thinking out loud or what? <laughs> I think this might be a good place to stop. What do you think? Okay, before uh, Harbinger uh, really gets underway with her mission to gather, yeah. to summon the selected. Cause now, yeah, because now we're really get, we're getting into sort of like a new part and there's some, you know, new new focus for this issue. Mm. All right, so we won't get around to uh, talking about the characters on the cover after all. Oh, uh, no. Say, uh, tease for next time. Okay. Well, <laughs> let me throw out one or two minor things. Go ahead. The cover, sure. Though. Yeah. Uh, you notice that all five members of the crime syndicate are uh, depicted on that cover. Yep. Uh, it kind of looks to me, you know, they're, they're all fairly small and uh, kind of tucked into little corners of the cover. I'm thinking that uh, maybe Perez threw them in there as an afterthought. Like maybe they weren't part of his original design. Maybe it was originally just supposed to be the chosen, like, 15 characters. And he just threw in the Earth 3 people just as a little going-away present, consolation yeah. prize. Yeah, you're going to cease to exist, but hey, you're on the cover. <laughs> Especially like little Johnny Quick, you can barely see him. Yeah. He's on the back panel of the cover. He's practically being pulled away into the big white spot up there by, yeah. by the chain of Earths. And you really have to look at Owlman and, and sort of go, oh yeah, that's not Batman because his boots are different and he has no gloves. Yeah, just, I don't know. There's uh, uh, all I can see looking at that is a big smudge shaped like my thumbprint. Uh, <laughs> so, does, is is there a white cord connecting uh, his uh, wrists to his back? Um, I think that that is supposed to be a part of Owlman's costume. I think no, but he definitely, you know, he has those boots that sort of fold over those Alex Raymond type boots, um, whereas Batman has. Uh, Swashbuckling, or these are swashbuckling boots. Right, but, and Batman's are skin tight. Yeah. So. Gotcha. Okay, and um, well, yeah, I don't need to say anything about any characters we haven't been introduced to yet. But, um, but yeah, just looking at uh, the image of Harbinger in full costume, they're just kind of standing in the midst. She's the only one that doesn't that seems detached from you know, the chaos surrounding her. She's just kind of watch, standing there, dispassionately observing everything. Well, Pariah, he's, he doesn't seem to be rocked by the same waves of cosmic impact as the others either, but he's at least emotionally moved by it. So right. they're kind of at opposite corners of the image and at opposite ends of the emotional spectrum. One of them is fully in, in the throes of grief and terror, and the other one is just kind of standing there. And I'm just looking at those white lines extending from her head, you know, like those staff lines going off to the right. Totally 80s. <laughs> Harris love, yeah, he loved to do stuff like that. If you look at um, some of his pinups that he did for like New Teen Titans or for, um, did you ever see his uh, Justice League uh, cards, little little postcards? No, I haven't. Yeah, there's uh, there's about sixteen of them, all featuring a different member of the Justice League, except for like the Hawks. They're together, and the last one is. Um, all the four new characters from the Detroit era. Um, and it's very designy in that way, you know, where there's, there's a, 
a design element that'll connect the background or or a shape of something and and um he was he was really big on that mm. in this time time frame yeah sort of graphic abstractions yeah exactly right right so i can see that as a part of this cover it, it kind of makes i can you know i'm like ah yeah that's paris <laughs> yes <laughs> oh another one another good example of that is um I think it's Wonder Woman 300 where he does a pinup in there and all the Amazons are holding up swords. And I think the design of the sword sort of blend into her W, her double W uh, chest plate and Hippolyta's blonde Hippolyta is actually formed out. Her face is formed out of clouds. Huh. So uh, again, it's that, that sort of Parisy designy element that he likes to do. Well, okay, we got ten pages. <laughs> That's not bad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We've. Uh, oh, no, I'm sorry, thirteen. Yeah, yeah. Well, okay. well, twelve and a half. We haven't quite gotten down to the bottom half of page thirteen, where right. Solovar enters the story. But, but we will, we will. Oh yeah. Have newfound no f- newfound commitment. Right. Well, this is the anniversary year. You know, we've, it's it's timely. We we we've got a reason to to really press on with this now. All right, so have no fear, Crisis Faithful. We will be back with more annotation of uh, this uh, seminal text in the uh, weeks and months to come. In the meantime, you can always stop by uh, thecomicforums.com where the uh, inevitable uh, talkback thread will be established to let us know what you thought of this issue, share your own thoughts, your own recollections about uh, crisis number one, you know the, the issues that we've raised here. And uh, if you have any suggestions for how we might uh, ref- refine our approach in future installments, we'll happily listen to them. Well, it was a pleasure jo- uh, talking crisis with you again, Adam. Peter, it is always a pleasure talking crisis with you too, Peter. <laughs> Until right. next time. Until next time, the world will continue to end. <laughs> Good night, everybody. 